to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. And we thank you for just the timeliness of this series, just like Jesus, how that you set an example for us, uh, not just in the way that you dealt with agony and struggle, but God, the way that you set Jesus as our example for the way that we live life and the way that we encounter every circumstance that we encounter. And God, as we face uh, this pandemic, as we are in the midst of many people suffering and dying, may it just give us as believers just a more passionate and dedicated response of the gospel and knowing the gospel, spreading the gospel, starting in our homes first and working out to all those around us. We thank you for Jesus Christ and him we celebrate in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Every first Sunday here at Grace, we do first Sunday fast where we promote a special day of fasting and prayer. And those who are part of our church family, you received a video that told what fasting is and what fasting is. And it's not a way to twist God to try to get him to do what we want him to do. It's a way to humble ourselves and submit to his will. And so I encourage you today maybe to consider fasting from media, from the news. Some of you I know I've talked to and you're so into just knowing every moment by moment what's going on in the world. And I think it would do us all a world of good maybe just to take one day and say, today, you know, things are going to happen, but I don't have to be aware of it all today. I can wait till tomorrow. And use those times where we feel that urge to go and check out the news story or the World Health Organization, see how many people have, have contracted the virus today. Instead of doing that, spend those times in prayer, spend those times in focusing more upon God. And, and I promise you, as Isaiah wrote many, many, many years ago uh, in Isaiah 26.3, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you. And then he connects trust with your thoughts, all whose thoughts are fixed upon you. And so if we fix our eyes and our thoughts upon God and not so much on the world around us for today, I promise you that you will find greater peace than you have been experiencing. So we return to Mark chapter 14. We return to the garden where Jesus is agonizing. He's laboring in prayer that this cup might pass from him. Verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. 
yet not what I will, but what you will. And we talked about this last week, that he uses this term Abba. This term is a very endearing term. It's an intimate term for his father. And, he, and, and he's just, uh, it's like the picture of a child just praying out, God, if there's any way possible. And you remember we talked about the, that he's not referring to the pain of the cross. He's not re- referring to just the, the agony that, he will fin- uh, that he'll experience personally, physically on the cross. What he's dealing with here is the, the metaphor of the cup, an Old Testament symbol, which was about God's wrath. Because what's going to happen, and Jesus is beginning to, to, to see this and, and, and beginning to respond to the, the fact that he is going to be taking on the full wrath of God that's going to be poured out on him rather than us who deserve it. He's going to take on the sins of the world. He's going to drink on behalf of all humanity the, the, the wrath of God against sin. And so God would place the sins of the world upon Jesus Christ. And for the first time, he would feel this, this desolation, this, this disconnect from uh, being uh, unconscious to the, the Father's presence, the source of all love and light and all goodness. And, and so momentarily, he is just going to feel this, this desolation. He's anticipating these things because the cross at this point is only 10 to 12, 15 hours away at most. And so he, he's overwhelmed. He's horrified. And what does he do when, when, when he's getting ready to experience this, when he's preparing himself for this? He takes along his disciples and he leaves uh, the eight, and then he takes three additional ones even closer into the garden to him within earshot. He takes uh, Peter, James, and John with him, and he leaves them close. And, and he says in verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And so he says, I need you three, my closest disciples, to stay here and watch and you pray but what does Jesus do? Jesus goes away and he prays. And then we get to the, the verses we're going to cover today. In verse 37, after he had been agonizing, he returns to find them asleep. He says, he came to them and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not just watch for one hour? And he, he singles out Peter here. Why did he single out Peter? You ever been in that situation? Maybe you think back to when you were in school or if you are in school, the teacher leaves the room comes back in, and the first name he or she calls is your name. Uh, John, what are you doing? I'm like, what's everybody else doing too? Why are you picking on me? And, and I'm sure Peter felt a little bit like that. Why, why is he being singled out? But he, he's the leader. He's the leader of this bunch. And Peter uh, is one of those case studies in what makes a good leader. Is it um, natural? Are they born with these abilities, or, or are they made? And, and I think it's a little bit of both. Peter was born with all the raw material of a great leader, but without Jesus' discipleship, Peter would never have been more than a fisherman. Maybe a leader as a fisherman, but never more than a fisherman. And without Jesus' grace and his restoration, Peter would have returned, we learn in the Gospels. He would have returned to being a fisherman. And so Jesus saw Peter as the leader of this bunch. He was the one who was going to turn the world upside down And he was the one who was going to lead his brother and back, as we talked about last week. And I think one of the big takeaways we're going to to deal with today is this idea as, as parents, particularly fathers, our responsibility to lead in the home, to disciple our children. And look, plain and simple, discipleship will not happen unless you yourself are increasing in your spiritual death, in in your sincerity. That's essential 
if you are going to be the leader that you've been called to be in your home with your kids. And what a perfect time with more time in the home right now. Dad, step it up. Mom, step it up and use this time for discipleship, helping your kids get in perspective what's going on in the world. We'll talk more about that later. And then notice another thing that, that Jesus does. He refers to Peter as Simon. He says, Simon, are you asleep? This is his old name before he met Jesus. Jesus gave him the name of Peter. He was failing so badly that Jesus uses his old name because he's acting like his old self before Jesus' discipleship. It's kind of like a parent. When you, when you get mad at your children or get upset with your children, what do you do? You're like, John David Woodrum, you better. And I remember clearly my mom and dad saying that to me when they get upset. And that's kind of what's going on here, that Jesus is irritated by the fact that there they are at, at the moment of crisis, at the time when he needed these guys the most. He brought them in, his, his inner circle, his fight club. He brings them in, and yet they're sound asleep. And this is the same Peter who just had vowed that, Jesus, I'll die for you. I'll die with you, Jesus. Yet he couldn't even stay awake and pray with him for an hour. And so when it came to rhetoric at this point, Peter was your man. But when it came to reality, not so much. He could not execute at this point in his life, and he's going to fail miserably. And Jesus says in verse 38, he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Look at that carefully. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So the watching and praying prepare are preparing you before the temptation. It, a lot of times we face the temptation, and that's when we go and pray. But this should be cultivating all the time a heart of, within us of dependence upon God, dependence upon Christ, to watch and to pray. And so he asked Peter, James, and John to do two things. He says, watch. What he's talking about there is just stay alert. Be alert. This is not passive. This is a military term. Don't wait till the temptation comes. Watch and pray before the temptation comes. It's the same word that Peter, of all people, uses in his own letter in 1 Peter 5, 7 through 9. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Then here it is. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith. So if, if you look at the scripture, go ahead and keep that, that scripture of 1 Peter on the screen. If you look at this, you have reason to be anxious. He says, you have reasons to be anxious. Why? Because you have a real enemy who is seeking your spiritual demise. He's seeking to devour you. He's seeking to shipwreck your faith. But he says, cast all your anxieties on him. God is big enough and he's powerful enough. He cares for us. And he wants us to cast that onto him. But what does that mean? Does it mean that we now don't have to worry about it? Okay, God is, is for us, so now we just kind of become passive in the process. Now we can just, just do our thing because God's there watching over us. I think about an illustration of this. Uh, one year I was coaching youth soccer. And uh, during the game, we had it was an under-12 team, I believe. And we had this one kid that was quite a bit bigger than everyone else on, uh, out on the field. I mean, this kid was one of those kids that was an early, you know, peaked early. He was probably 5'10". Everybody else was like, you know, 4'10". And, and, he, and he was an aggressive, rough player. 
But by, by all like observation, he was playing within the rules. It didn't seem like he was being overly aggressive. He was just bigger and tougher than everybody else. Well, some parents took exception to this, and after the game, uh, one of the parents came to me and confronted me as the coach for the way this kid was playing, and then I looked around, and all of a sudden, it wasn't just one guy that was confronting me. It was like three or four men, and you could smell the alcohol on their breasts, and they began to confront me. But I wasn't nervous at all. You know why? Because it so happened that my friend George Simernios, who is a Florida Highway Patrol officer, was up visiting here in Bainbridge at that time, and he was standing right next to me. And so I felt this confidence about myself because, you know, I got George next to me. Even though we're in Georgia, he's a trooper. You know, all he needs to do is pull out the badge or at least show the gun, right? And, 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 And he's got me covered. So I had this confidence about me to stand up that I normally wouldn't have had. And, and so you think about that, you think God has your back, cast your anxieties on him, so I could just be passive in the process. But that's not what you have here. Peter says that we should be watchful, sober-minded. Sure, God is plenty big enough, but we're part of that process. That, that throughout Scripture, you see this again and again and again. He says, we strive, we work, we endure, but with the strength that God provides. And so I think so many times we take this uh, uh, view of our Christianity of let go and let God. Well, that's not scriptural. That we work in the process. We're watchful. We're sober because we have a real adversary and we resist him. And so this doesn't produce careless Christians. It doesn't produce lazy Christians. It produces watchful, vigilant Christians. And so spiritual watch, uh, watchfulness, it sees the temptation is going to come. It knows it's going to come. It's all around us. And the second thing that Jesus told the disciples, to pray, to pray. Our faithfulness is grounded in staying in touch with God. Our faithfulness is grounded in staying in touch with God. And the disciples failed miserably at both watching and praying. Why did they fail so miserably? Verse 38, the second part. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. They underestimated their need for God's strength, and they underestimated how utterly weak they were in the flesh. They did not understand that they needed God tremendously at this moment. And Peter and the others had this desire to do right. Can you relate to that? You have this desire Guys, I, I, want, I want to leave my family. I want to have family devotions. I want to take this time to really have meaningful prayer. And then you get to that moment, and all of a sudden, the flesh is weak. You have good intentions, but the flesh is weak. This term flesh in Scripture can refer to the physical body itself, or just more generally from a spiritual aspect, it's this unredeemed humanness, this this. We inherited, we all inherited it from Adam, and we'll battle it until we receive our glorified bodies that, the, that we're going to oftentimes just want to do what we want to do. And the flesh is this natural ally into temptation. The flesh is going to be drawn to the temptation. And so the disciples here in the garden, they're a good reminder for us. We can so easily get distracted from doing God's will by the demands of the flesh. And it could be just physical things like hunger or laziness or exhaustion. Or it can be sexual desire, defensiveness, 
it can be suspicion or just a wondering mind that can't stay focused. I mean, I, I think about even as a kid, I thought about this illustration when in our church we used to, when we took communion, we'd take it in the little plastic jars, uh, cups, and, in, and I was holding the cup and the pastor would be talking and I would just be zoning out from what he was saying. And I noticed that the lights in the ceiling would all of a sudden make this little dot in my communion cup where the, the juice was, and I could just kind of move it around, and all of a sudden the dot would move around. I mean, just how silly is that? that? That something so innocent and mindless, you know, would be all of a sudden be so interesting at a moment of seriousness. But the thing is, adults, we don't grow out of this. You open your Bible and you start reading in the morning, and all of a sudden you're looking around the room like, oh, that, uh, you know, crown molding needs fixed over there. Or, Man, I could, that wall needs painted. Don't we? Our, our minds just start to wonder. We start to pray, and we go a million different directions. And so we can relate to what Jesus told the disciples. Yes, your, your spirit is willing. You have good intentions, but the flesh is weak. And Galatians 5 gives us example after example of the things that the flesh are drawn to. And I'm going to read verse 19 through 21 of Galatians 5 because this just says it so well. And this is a modern translation. This is the Passion translation. And look what it says. It'll be on your screen. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, lustful thoughts, pornography, chasing after things instead of chasing of God or, or pursuing God, manipulating others, Hatred of those who get in your way, senseless arguments, resentment when others are favored, tenter, temper tantrums, angry quarrels, only thinking about yourself, being in love with your own opinions, being envious of the blessings of others, murder, uncontrolled addictions, wild parties, and all other similar behavior. Wow. That's a convicting list, right? Our flesh is weak, and it shouts out very, very loudly when we want something. And the uproar can make it easy to drown out the desires of God, the good intentions that we know we should do, the work of the Spirit in our lives. And that's what's going on right here with the disciples. What Jesus told the disciples, watch and pray. That's the key, to watch and pray for us we watch and we pray and we ask the Holy Spirit just to fill us, help us to walk in the Spirit. As Galatians 5 says, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. If we're walking, if we're communicating with God, if we're staying in touch with God and having that fellowship, we don't have to fulfill those desires. Before Christ, you were a victim to Him. You had no choice. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Scripture says. But now you've been made alive. You no longer have to give in to those temptations. And so when we're led by the Spirit, He gives us the strength to keep the flesh from getting the upper hand. And then this idea of praying, He says, watch and pray. Let's think about praying for a second. So many times we make just prayer about our wants and, and our list, and here's what we want to see happen. But look at the model that Jesus gives us, that He's saying, God, here's what I prefer if there's any other way. But He's saying, not my will, but yours be done. And prayer is confession of our weakness, our inability to understand God's will apart from Him revealing it to us through His Word, through the, um, the Holy Spirit and His illumination. And so prayer is confession of the weakness of our flesh. Do you do that? Is it a, it, do you have your prayer time when you say, God, I, I confess to you 
my natural inclinations, my natural desires are all these things that just please me, fulfill me, make me happy. That's what seems natural to me. But God, I don't want to live naturally. I want to live supernaturally. I want to be led by the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. It's hard for us to admit our need for help, isn't it? I mean, we live in this enlightened world, this, this world that has so many different things at our fingertips, but yet we find ourselves today in a world that's being shut down completely by a single little virus that's happening. God is exposing our delusion of control. He's showing us that maybe we're not as smart as we think we are, that all this ambition to pursue other things and leave God behind, God's drawing us back to himself. He's saying, look up and see how small you and I really are. Look up and see God for who he is. And then Jesus returns back to his disciples again. He leaves them. He goes back to pray. And then after he's prayed again, it says in verse 39, and again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words, God, if there's any way possible. And then he gets up and he comes back to them. And he found them sleeping again. Strike two, right? For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. All right, talking to Peter, Peter, the guy who always has something to say, right? At this point, he's got no defense, no rebuttal. Jesus confronts him, and they're like, oh, you know, sorry. We're just, you know, we're, we're weak. We are weak. And then verse 41 and 42, he came to them a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? We're weak people. Even t today, as we deal with this fasting and want to really fast from media, I know how easy it is to grab your phone and you begin, like, I need to know, I need to know what's going on, I need to see what's going on. I encourage you, if you fail, if today you start your fast, you have good intentions, I'm going to do this, and then you fall on your face, don't quit. Pick back up and continue on. Pray to God. This should be a good reminder of how weak you truly are and how weak we, we are. And we need the Spirit's guidance. We need the Spirit's leading. And so Jesus comes to him a third time. And he says, are you sleeping? Still sleeping and taking rest? And then he changes here. It's a whole different tone. It says, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is being betray betrayed into the hands of the sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. Jesus has emerged victorious. After three battles in prayer, there was mo no more need for Jesus to wrestle in prayer. He had accepted the Father's will. He fully entrusted himself to the Father and into his care. No matter what occurred, the matter was settled. God's sovereign will was revealed, and he was okay with that. And from here on, as we look at Jesus... And we look at him going to the cross, he doesn't offer any resistance. He doesn't try to defend himself. There's no sadness. There's no bitterness. The spiritual victory for humanity was in aim. It was in sight. It was near. And he knew what he had to do. And it was going to be costly. And it was going to require him of him something that he never, ever dreamed to experience, which was a feeling of isolation from his father. But Jesus did that for us. He took on the sins of the world for us. And what does he ask? He asks of us what he asks of the disciples. He says, watch and pray. The disciples, their failure to watch and pray led to spiritual disaster for them. 
Spiritual victory is the result of watchfulness and prayer, confessing our weakness and submitting to the will of the Father, just like Jesus did by the strength of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual victory is the result of watchfulness and prayer, confessing our weakness and submitting to the will of the Father. Whereas on the other hand, spiritual failure is the result of self-confidence and a lack of spiritual preparedness. Parents, dads, moms, are you willing to be intentional during this time? God has given us some special time here. And even though it's in the midst of tragedy and we don't celebrate what's going on by any means, we want to take what God has given us, this opportunity, and use it to really, really make a difference right there in the home, our first mission field, per se, that we should be about. Well, Mitch took a a video camera and interviewed one of our families a few days ago about this very thing, what they were doing in the home in order to disciple their kids and a little extra time they have right now. And after this video, I'm going to have Jerry Edson join me on up here on the stage, and we're going to talk a little bit about practically what this looks like. And if you don't know Jerry, maybe some of you all recognize him from church. They've recently moved back here from Athens, and he has a lot to say about men, ministry, family ministry, and so I'm looking forward to you to hear from him. So let's watch Mitch Escobar, Naveth Escobar. The first thing I want to say is like actually I don't think we are the the perfect family but what I really believe is that uh, Yvette and myself we are trying to do all the time is be intentional. What I try to do is um, during you know our activities now that we are uh, in quarantine you know I try to apply every these things in our life for example pruning some uh, plants outside and the kid says why are you you know cutting all these branches as well i'm looking for some dead down as disease um, branches and that is what god is doing in our life i am a routine person so for me if i i tell them you have to be here on, on, the, on the table at 7:25, and i know that at 7:25 i have to start the devotional with them and it's going to take just five to ten minutes. And I really like to read the devotional, but I read more the Bible sometimes. And uh, I just ask them questions. What does it mean when Jesus said this? Or what does it mean to forgive? Uh, I like to for them to apply. Okay, this is how you can apply it. The other thing I was telling Yvette that I think it works really good uh, with our kids is that we spend some time just playing games with them. Even Joel was talking with us saying, when he relaxed, when they are open to, I guess, to listen, to listen to us. But one of the things that we need to be very conscious is we are not going to change our kids. It's God that is changing them. I heard a lot of people complaining about what are we going to do with our kids. I think this is a very good opportunity to take our kids and you know share about the gospel. To be patient and consistent as parents. That is sometimes the hardest part on us, to be patient and consistent as parents. This is Jerry Edson, and some of you, like I said, may recognize him. He was part of this church 10 or 11 years ago, and their family moved away, and that was sad, but so glad that God brought you back here. In fact, I, we, were, we were talking a little bit earlier that uh, we actually set up on the stage uh, 11 years ago, and I interviewed you about 
your tour of duty in Iraq and everything that you went through there. We're both a lot better looking now. We're, we're <laughs> a little more this. gray hair for me, yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> hey, so I asked Jerry to be part of this conversation because he has a real passion for men's ministry and in the church he was at in before he was very involved in that. And let me just ask you, uh, Jerry, what does it seem like men are spiritually asleep at the will? What's, what's going on what, from your experience? What do you think? I took that question. You know, I, I told you earlier today that I kind of wrestled with that one the most. And uh, put it in the context. I wanted to put it in the context of marriage because, like I said, that you know, if if men are failing in spiritual ministry at home, that's that's the most important ministry first, and I think we're failing everything else. And so I had I had uh, um, an answer in my mind about this, and I asked Larissa. You know, she's such a such a wise woman. I'm not just saying that because she's watching. <laughs> she she is. A lot of things I say are coming from conversations that we have. And so I asked her, and she says without hesitation, she said, "Well, I think because men." don't understand there's the significance of the role and I was like whoa you know that, that hit deep because I was there I understand that one completely is that um, the marriage union was what was designed what God designed to represent his love for us through Jesus and, and I think personally that the devil likes to tear that one down first and uh, having having experience in that one um, it really hit home that you know, men had the habit of just, I think, just being lazy. And I'm talking about Jerry here. I was just lazy. I was uh, complacent in, in how I ministered um, with my wife and how I uh, grew my relationship with God and how, to, how I would let that influence the ministry at home. It's just I didn't understand. I didn't understand what, um, you know, even Paul himself had wrote that marriage is a, is a great mystery. And, um, and it wasn't until I figured out, and I would say I'm still trying to figure it out, but working towards it is is um, what does it really mean when Paul says, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church? And that's something that I had to I, I pray about every day is, God, show me how to love Larissa like you love me. Mm-hmm. And if I don't understand how God loves me, that's probably the first place I need to, I need to figure out. Mm-hmm. You know, reading a book um, that Timothy Keller wrote, Meaning of Marriage, and I wanted to share, you know, he said it, it is a mystery, and how he explains it is that the, the secret to this mystery is, is what husbands should do for their wives is what Jesus did to bring us into union with himself. And he gave himself up for us, and he died to his own interest and looked to our needs and interests instead. It's very timely in, in light of this passage that Jesus, what he went through yeah. so that we could have salvation. And I don't think most of us have that mindset with our wife and our families, do we, that, that we're going to go to that level, that, that extent yeah, to do those things. No, you're right. It's you know, I was just asking Larissa this morning, and she's like, "Well, what does that look like?" And I, I can tell you what I do, what it looks like. I can tell you things. And I've done this before with men, trying to help them understand. Look, this is what worked for Jerry and Larissa. This is what I did. But if I'm giving you a list of things to do, mm-hmm. you're not. Your heart's not right. You're not internalizing. You really have to go back to understanding. Man, what did Jesus do for me? Mm-hmm. And this is what He requires for me to do for my wife. Mm-hmm. You know, even, even in Philippians 2, you know, the Son of God did not exploit his equality with the Father, but his greatness was revealed in his willingness to become the Father's servant. And that's how I see it. I'm, yeah. My wife, we, we, it says submit to one another, but, you know, I think to, to explain that, and we can move to the next question, but John Piper gave this analogy that I've used before, and it's so great, because the husband and wife both going to have a responsibility, but the, men, the man, I think, is ultimately responsible. And he said it like this. He said, picture that you and your wife are struggling, going through a, a tough, tough time, and Jesus knocks at the door. The wife goes and she opens the door, and Jesus says, I'll get with you in a minute, but where's the man in the house? I want to talk to him first. Mm-hmm. And man, that just really hits home that, that we have, it's our job to lead. We, we want more love in the home. The men should lead by loving. 
Want better communication in the home? Men should lead by communicating. We want more humility in the home? Men should lead by being humble. And that's, that's the way I see that's, it. That's right. You know, during this time period particularly, I mean, men are under tremendous pressure. Um, all people are. Yeah. But I know uh, there's a lot of guys, including myself, who have been short with my family. Yeah. You know, you see what's going on in the world, and you, it, it, it's, you feel like, oh, am I going to have an income? Am I going to be able to provide for my family? And those stressors. But what, so what do you think uh, men should be focusing on right now as far as receiving from God themselves in order to have something to give to their, to their families? That's tough. I mean, I've, I've struggled with this one. Is, you know, I use the uh, analogy from Ricky Bobby, what do I do with my hands? You know, I, don't, I don't know what to do because especially during this time, I feel an overwhelming pressure that I need to do something. So what that caused, and this is as recent as a couple weeks ago, has caused a lot of tension and frustration in the home mm-hmm. where I feel like, the one thing I should be having control over, I don't. I internalize a lot of it, and it just led to just little sneak attacks that came within our relationship. But I mean, the biggest thing is is communication. I mean, being open about what's going on. Everything goes back to how the husband and wife, as a team, as a unit, should uh, respond to each other and uh, do it out of love for sure. But you know, I, I've struggled with that one, too. Is there something specific I should be doing? Is there something specific? Maybe even you are as a pastor, you feel like you should be doing, but I don't act, I don't feel like God's saying, I think if he wanted me to do something, Jerry, go do this. He'll be very open, very clear about go do this. But I think what he's asking us to do right now is just to take care of the, 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 the relationship that matters the most, which is the husband and the wife. You know, I think about even what I just said about Peter. You know, Peter was a natural leader, but he would have been a leader of fishermen had Jesus not discipled him. And so we can be great leaders at work. We can do great things in our community. But if we don't have Jesus discipling us, yeah. what's that energy going toward? It's going to stuff that's temporal, not eternal. Yeah. And so Jesus has to disciple us. And this idea of watching, I know you're a military guy, ex-military guy, and uh, this idea of watchfulness. What do you think uh, that applies to men? How do we watch and, and are vigilant at our post? Uh, yeah, that's a good one because... You know, you get the, the picture of a, a lone soldier standing uh, guard in a, you know, in a tower or something. But, you know, from experience, it's never one guy by himself. It's always at least two. And uh, so you got in that you got you're not alone, but you also know what you're looking for. And so you talked about it. You know, Peter said that the devil's you know, like a lion. He's seeking to devour. So we know who our enemy is. We're knowing what to look for. Um, it's being prepared for that. But you're also not doing it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, that includes your spouse, but also includes the accountability from other men as well. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. we, had, we had a saying in our old men's group is that you can't do life alone. Yeah. You know, men, I think, really feel that we can be the lone wolf and we'll tend to isolate ourselves, mm-hmm. tend to be off by ourselves. And I've seen it plenty of times that as soon as men start isolating themselves and getting alone, a lot of things start to just fall around, fall apart around them. Yeah. And um, I think, and I don't think you're referring to just to hang out with other guys, but no, it's no, got to be no. intentional spiritual yes. conversations, which is very uncomfortable for a lot of guys. It is uncomfortable for a lot of guys. And, you know, like I'm speaking from experience, but that's, that's the humility that it takes to overcome it. That's the humility it takes to break open, bring it into the light. I mean, it's, it's tough to stand up from a group of men and say, hey, I'm struggling with my marriage. Hey, I'm struggling with lust. I'm mm-hmm. struggling with this. It's, that's very vulnerable you have to do that. But, you know, um, there's a, the passage in Luke 22 you've mentioned before. I love that passage because it comes with accountability for men. You know, when Jesus says, hey, Peter, you know, Simon Peter, uh, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but, you know, I, but don't fear, I pray for you, your faith may not fail. But he said, 
but when I strengthen you, you turn and strengthen your brothers. And so I think a lot of times men are just waiting, you know, for God, God, come strengthen me, come strengthen me. But in fact, you know, God may strengthen somebody to come strengthen you. And that's kind of what we used as our motivation is that, you know, I'm there for my brother. So mm -hmm. we took that term brother and uh, we took it to heart is that that's what we are, brothers mm -hmm. and sisters in Christ. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. yeah. That was actually um, John Piper's little daily devotion, yep. Solid Joys. Yeah. It was yesterday. Yeah, it was yesterday. Very and good. Very, very, very good stuff. Yes. Well, I sent some links out to those who are in our church family. And if you're not part of this church family, you can contact me. I'd be glad to send it out to you, some follow-up questions, and also some links for some devotionals that you can do with your families. Uh, but guys, I, I want to encourage you. That Jerry said it one way. I say it another, but it's the same thing. You need other people in the foxhole with you. You can't fight this battle alone. We want to, to try to do it on our own strength. It's not manly to depend on somebody else. And that's why I asked Jerry to come up here, because this is one of the most authentic, open guys that I've ever met who's willing to talk about it. The flesh is weak, yeah. and we try to live and deny all that. Like, we put on a, a good front, like, oh, we, we got it together. But we're all battling the same things. Um, it may look a little bit different between your life and mine, but we're all battling against this flesh, this desire to please ourselves and do what we want. And so I encourage you to take the words of Jesus to heart today. Watch and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. Watch and pray. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Jesus Christ. And as we see just him agonize uh, in the garden as he uh, so dreads uh, facing your wrath, which was meant for us, yet he took it upon himself. God, I thank you for this reminder through these last couple of weeks of what you went to to secure our salvation. And God, I pray that we won't be passive believers, but we'll be believers who are vigilant and diligent and fight against the sins of the flesh to pursue after you, to, to have the courage to step up in our homes and lead our wife and lead our kids in the way that you've called us to lead. God, I thank you for Jerry, my brother here. Thank you that uh, he's brought, you brought him back to, to Grace Church. And God, I pray that we as men will hold each other accountable and encourage each other and be quick to speak truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks.